Friday nights like this. And that's how long the week's felt. <laughs> you know, it's been, it's been a long three days. We had, had a busy weekend. We, we left Houston at 2 o'clock on Sunday afternoon. It was 91 degrees. And we got here and it was 40 degrees and, and a 50 degree drop. Of course, I didn't have a jacket of any kind. And it was kind of rough there getting out of the car and getting to the house. I, Maybe they can run in and turn the heater on. <laughs> but uh, we had a good good time in this with that group of the family and uh, had a good good visit and good time with good folks. Uh, last time we were beginning to look at some some doctrinal things that have found their way into the church. You know, we, we spent a large amount of time talking about how we got from the governance structure of the church uh, that was there in the first century to, to what has developed and evolved and come to be over so many years. And during that process, you, you saw a lot of assumption of authority. It wasn't given, it wasn't granted, it, it was assumed authority. But the thing is, somebody can assume all of the authority they want, but there has to be others that are just kind of passively let them assume it and, and don't stand up and, and defend it. And when that happens, what you, you start to see is, is that the, the one that has, has assumed the authority begins to um, expand that authority. And they expand it outside of where the others had granted them that right to assume. And that, that's where a lot of these doctrinal things come in. Where, where men, individuals, <coughs> would introduce something. And if it wasn't challenged, it just became accepted. And if it was challenged, they just kind of sat back and built their case and worked the fringes, and, and, and it became accepted. And uh, Christ Church just wasn't recognizable in a lot of that. You just didn't see Christ in the church. Um, you started to see the development of, of, of the synods and, and the, the conventions and the councils, and they began to vote on, on what, you know, what well, just what did God mean by that? Well, let's have a power four vote. This is what he meant. And, and that's, that's what happened. And, and that's happening today uh, in, in this world, where people gather together and, and take the inspired word and they debate it and discuss it and argue about it and then they vote and that may stand for two years until they have another council or convention and and, and it's kind of well it's not kind of it, it, it's sad when that happens we, we talked about last time some, some of those doctrines that had, that had come into being, the, the concept of a holy water that, that had been purified by the blessing of a man. We had a concept.
concept of penance where there's a voluntary self-punishment where people said, you know, I've sinned and, and, and they would receive absolution by their voluntary punishing of their self. We, we, we saw uh, the, the introduction of the, the extreme unction called the last rites. Uh, we, we, see, we saw the introduction of the, the concept of kissing the Pope's tongue. We talked about this last time. And, and the reason, if you remember, that that came into being, someone who was sitting on the, the papal throne, whatever it's called, um, saw one of the kings receive this. And so he said, you know, that's cool. That's cool. And so he, he introduced that. But that, that's kind of passed away. Um, that of celibacy. And if you remember the cause of the introduction of celibacy, you know, Paul warned about it. He said, there'll come a time that they're going to refuse to marry. But the reason they adopted this policy of celibacy is because the <coughs> officials were, were bracing their family members, their children, with positions of power and authority. And so the answer was, well, let's just say you can't be married. That of indulgences, where, where you receive pardon, basically you were buying forgiveness. You, you, you can play with it and sugarcoat it and everything else, but they were buying forgiveness. And guess who reaped the benefits of that buying? You know, it wasn't the church. It was what? The one that was in charge. Auricular confession. Infallibility of the Pope. They began to, to become partners with civil governments. And, and, and it really blurred a line to where the church tended to kind of shade toward the government. Because it was the government that was putting the bill on a lot of things, and, and it just you know it just created a, a, a bad situation. And where we were when we ended was beginning to look at the concept of baptism. Because this this is the sad part to me whenever I look at this. All of it's sad. But when many of these doctrinal shifts occurred, what they were doing was they were stealing the, the, the eternity of people. I mean, you, you know, maybe you know a nicer way to put it, but I, I don't. Because they said salvation comes from some other way than what was taught in that first century, what had been demonstrated and 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 ground into the apostles and what they taught when they went out it became something totally different. And, and, and it's innocent people are being, they're, they're giving up their eternity. You know, Mark 16 and 16, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Then Simon himself in Acts 8 also believed that when he was baptized he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. 
Colossians 2.12, it reminds us we're buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And you go on and on and on and on. Baptism was pretty plain about what it was. Philip and the eunuch going down into the water. Immersion. Very specific. Very specific. Acts 2, uh, where we read where when, when uh, they ask, you know, what do we do? What, what do we need to do? He says what? Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Very specific and very plain. Yet all of a sudden, in AD 175, the concept of infant baptism was introduced. It came into acceptance. It, it, it found its way into the um, ecclesiac, uh, ecclesiastical teachings and the um, doctrinal teaching that went on within the church. Now, and, and there was an element of the early church that fought against that very, very, very forcefully. <laughs> But you know, once you introduce something into a body, it's very hard to take it out. You've ever worked with the legislators. They're one of these, they promise the moon, and, and they'll say, well, we'll just do this on a trial basis. But trust me, if they do it on a trial basis, it's there for the rest of your natural life. You know, and that's the way it was with those shifts as it came in baptism. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, Yes. What was their reason for thinking that Jesus had to be baptized? I don't know. Original sin. Original sin. Original sin, yes. Now some Calvinism. Yeah, some congregation Some congregations do it as a dedication, not necessarily a baptism, but because there's water that yeah. They about the age of accountability as being the point in time and everybody says okay when is the age of accountability it's not chronological is it? I, I've never seen it as being a chronological age maybe 
maybe you can find evidence where it says at the age of 14 years, 6 months, and 3 days, but I never found that. But what is that age of accountability? That's not a scriptural term. But it's the point that one realizes that there is right and wrong. Well, Sam Paul wrote, he said, when I was a child, I thought like a child. When I became a man, I put childish things behind me. Obviously, a, a, ch a baby, but not just a baby, a young child, a child cannot, uh, is not capable of making a decision about becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ because they were formerly lost and now that they have been saved, they have no concept. They do not have, they do not have the ability to fathom eternal consequences. They, they do not. A child I mean, does I mean, not. Let, let, let's be honest. That they have a hard time understanding the consequences of the now. Right. You know, of what's going on here. And to think of that as an eternal mm -hmm. thing. There's no way. You know, I, I don't read... Sometimes I wish I could remember more about me as a child, my, my thought processes. It'd probably scare me to death, you know, if I did. But, but I would like to, to go back to have that innocence. You know, all, all I knew, I can remember, you know, you'd just wake up and it was time to go. And you did something. Me and my brother, we did all the right things. <laughs> well, Sam, even, even a Hebrew child did not become accountable to the law of Moses until they turned 13, 13 years old. Years old. Uh, and so being able to consider, when you think about the, 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 the law of Moses, being able to consider uh, the ramifications both of your actions uh, as they affect other people, but also your relationship with God, uh, you know, there's. It's it's. I'm, I'm not suggesting that that that's the answer. What I'm saying, I, but I am saying it's instructive. Right. You know. Uh, That age of 13, where they have, what do they call that celebration? Bar Mitzvah. Bar Mitzvah. Bar Mitzvah. Uh, that, that, that's something that's on a timetable. That's a chronological thing. And I've been around enough kids in my life, I, I've got a classroom full of 12 year olds. And in that 12 year old group, I've got 49 of them. There's 49 different you know, every one of them is at a different point. Some of those 12-year-olds are six-year-olds, emotionally, you know. Some of them, due to circumstances of life, are 18 years old or older because they've had to grow up. And then you have those that more follow the textbook, whatever that is, 12-year-old. And then everything in between both, both ends of the spectrum. You remember in, in, in the temple, 
when Mary and Joseph had left and gone, and all of a sudden they said, hey, did you get Jesus? And they said, no, I thought you did. And they started looking for him. I kind of laughed about that because we got down to the cafe to eat a while ago, and I got inside, and I said, where's Bailey? And they said, I don't know where they had to go back to the pickup. I locked her up. <laughs> she was not happy with me. You know? She was not happy with me. Praise oh, God. As I get out, I always push the lock and pop the door, you know. And I thought she'd already gotten out. She hadn't. But Mary and Joseph, Mary and Joseph were saying, you know, where's Jesus? And, and, and they looked around like, you know, what, what did you, you know, you respond, no, it's your job, you know. And, and I bet it was the same conversation that we had had. And they go back, and where did they find him? He was in the temple. And he was approximately what age? Twelve years old. And, and you know that they said all were amazed with the questions he was asking. They were amazed about what he was saying. But do you remember after they left there, what did it say? Jesus did what? He grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. And he grew in what? Favor. In what? Favor. Favor. Mm-hmm. Grew in favor. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, that shows you the fleshly Jesus had to go through that maturation process. Yes. And and they were amazed. They were amazed. Because he knew things beyond his years. And, and, and I, that's one thing I've always thought about is what did Jesus know at 12 years old? You know, how, 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 how much did he understand? But that age of accountability thing that, that, that is our term it's not a biblical term, yet there's evidence that there is an age that you reach. Mm-hmm. But it's not chronological, really. It's when one realizes what Kevin was talking about, they reach the point that they understand eternal consequences for actions. You can go back there right now and take any six-year-old and ask them, how important is Jesus to you? Same if you asked them, do you want to be a Christian? They'd tell you yes. They'd ask you, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And they'll tell you yes. yes. And they honestly believe that. And they ask all the time, Paul, Paul, when when can I go into that water? You know? And, And you know, for me, as a grandparent, it's hard not just take them, baby, I'm going to take you and dump you right there, you know? But you'd be doing them a disservice, I'd be saying. Doing them a disservice. It's that, a disservice. That's, that's why I'm fixing to say. Because you, 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 in your heart, where you want to see them is in heaven. That, that's your goal for them. But realistically, there's no way they're ready. There's no way. Because they don't understand what those consequences are. And Sam, can I point something else out sure. too? They'll never have the knowledge of what it means to be lost. No. 
You cannot be saved until you understand being lost. You, you have to, to be rescued, you have to be in danger. Mm -hmm. To be rescued, you have to be in danger. And, and, and all of this, these adaptations, leave that point out. You know, we, we, we often hear in, in the, the, you know, the prayer. It's got to pray the prayer. You, you, you know where that prayer came, concept came from? That, that wasn't until the early 1900s. And that's when you had these big evangelists that had the big traveling revival things and the big tents. And they'd go city to city. And, and, and they would have just hundreds answer the, the altar call. And they would tell them, just say the prayer. But they would also tell them, in most cases, that you need to be baptized as quick as you can. But they left town, and guess what? They never got baptized. And, and that just, that practice went on. And it's just like we were talking a while ago. Once you put it in place, it's permanent. It's permanent. You talk about their, their doctrine of purgatory. It, 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 it's, it's a second chance is what purgatory is. If, if you're guilty of, 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 of non-mortal non, uh, sins, just a venial of not-so-bad sins, you go to purgatory and you work it out. Until you become perfect again. It's, a, it's an intermediate step. I, I can't find that scripture. You know? I can't find that. Where, where they cite, and I'm, 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 I'm going to read this, but simply because I, I want you to understand how many of you have ever read uh, the Dewey Rims Catholic Bible? Okay. Uh, in Jerusalem, there's several. But I, I, this, this is where they go. In 2 Maccabees 12, beginning in verse 40, this, this is what it said. This, this is from uh, the uh, Dewey Rams. It says, They found under the coats of the slain some of the donaries of the idols of Jamnia, which the law forbiddeth to the Jews, so that all plainly saw that for this cause they were slain. Then they all blessed the just judgment of the Lord who had discovered the things that were hidden. And so betaking themselves to prayers, they besought him that the sin which had been committed might be forgotten. But the most valiant Judas exhorted the people to keep themselves from sin for as much as they saw before their eyes what had happened because of the sins of those that were slain. And making a gathering, he sent 12,000 drachmas of silver to Jerusalem for sacrifice to be offered for the sins of the dead, thinking well and religiously concerning the resurrection. For if he had not hoped that they, they that were slain should rise again, it would have seemed superfluous. I'm just going to use one of the words. Superfluous and vain to pray for the dead. And because he considered that they who had fallen asleep with godliness had great grace laid for them. It is therefore a holy and wholesome thought to pray for the dead 
that they may be loosed from sins. How many chances does God give us? And, and there are several ways to look at that. He gives us a chance every day. Every second we have a breath in our body. But when the time comes, folks, he's made it clear what? There's no more. I've given you an opportunity to live your life filled with hope. With the hope that one day that hope is not necessary because the reality of heaven is there. You know, that's his And when you draw your last breath and Jesus returns to call his own, that's it. And you're either on the good side or the bad side. You know? I, sometimes it sounds so harsh to me to say those words. There is a judgment and it is a judgment day. But God has given us ample opportunity. And he's probably given us more chances. Well, not probably. He has absolutely given us more chances than we rightfully deserve. But why does he do that? Because he loves us. He loves us. He loves us. And the depth of his love, we can't fathom. Not really. And, and, and that's because as, as humans, we're so... And, and his love is just beyond anything we could possibly imagine. Let's talk about the Lord's Supper. Matthew uh, 26, beginning in verse 25, it says, Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He then took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Now you can read in Mark, you, you can read in, in Luke, you can read in 1 Corinthians, uh, you, you can read lots of places. And the Lord's Supper has evolved into something that has never been taught in Scripture, nor practiced. Upon the first day of the week, it, it, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but on Sundays when we're gathered around this table, and there's a prayer offered for the bread. You know, that's an emotional thing to me. It, it truly is. And we partake of that body. And then there's a prayer for the cup. That's an emotional thing. Very emotional to me. It's very simple. Very simple. But it reaches so deep to what Jesus was, to what Jesus wanted us to do and what he wanted, wanted to do for us. What happened to communion? 
concept of transubstantiation, which is that the, the, the bread becomes the literal body and, and the fruit of the vine the literal blood of Jesus. And the bread is offered to all. What did Jesus say? Drink from it. Who? All of you. All of you. This is from the Baltimore Catechism. It says, The sacrifice of the new law in which Christ, through the ministry of the priest, offers himself to God in an unbloody uh, manner under the appearance of bread and wine. Holy Eucharist became church law in 1414 at the Council of Constance. But this is what Scripture says in Hebrews 7, verse 27. He does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. It's not an everyday sacrifice. It's a sacrifice. We went to the class Sunday morning and uh, they were studying Galatians. You know, and they were about where we are in the Hindu study. And uh, there, there was a discussion that was going on about what we're talking about. Because it's all so tightly related, dealing with Hebrews and Leviticus and, and, and going back to the sacrifice business. In Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 24. It said, For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. There's no need for more sacrifices. It's been taken care of. Jesus has to come. Now, if you think about the tabernacle being a copy of the things that were to come, as the Hebrew writer says, you know, you could, only one person could go in the Holy of Holies, and they could only go in there once a year, and that was a high priest. But Jesus has gone into the Holy of Holies, and he just stayed in there. And he, he and, gets, and he is the holy. And he gets, but he gets to stay in the pre in the holy of holies. You were in the presence. The high priest was to be in the presence of God. He went into the presence of God, and he gets to stay there. That's why the that's why the Hebrew writer says that he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest permanently. He is a perpetual high priest.
I've thought a lot here here the last couple of weeks as, as I've been in this particular phase of the study, talking about <clears throat> the changes that took place as to where authority lies. And, and honestly, there's never been a question about where that authority lies because Jesus himself said, what? I have all authority. Case closed. But that, that's not the way it's dealt. But, but I came up with basically three things <clears throat> that to me bear looking at or, or, or considering. Number one, when we look at all these changes that, that took place, some of them took place within a hundred years of the crucifixion. Some of them slowly evolved over time up into the 1800s. Even. Um, but there's this claim of apostolic succession and, and, and the presumption was they were gonna improve on the plan by becoming innovative in their worship. And, 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 and I've read from, from different histories, uh, the word innovation was used to, you know, at, in the year 200, uh, the 200s or the 300s, or the first two or three centuries. And, and you know what you hear in the church today out there? Is an introduction of innovation. Innovation. And, and, you know, I understand we live in modern times, and I understand we got access to things that, that, that did not exist many times in, in the church. And it's not, not the use of amplification, overheads. It's not about the use of it, it's the purpose of the use of it and, and what you're trying to accomplish. But the innovations became things that were just absolutely absent in the early church. They're additions. They're not cleanups. They're not amendments. They're not um, uh, trimming them up. They're not streamlining them. They're inventions is what they are. Brand new add-ons that have been placed on, on, on what was the doctrine to be studied. Can, can you imagine knowing the temperament of Peter and Paul? Can you imagine if they were face to face with some of these people that were offering these innovations? Can you see Peter? I mean, I mean, this is the guy that protects Jesus. He whacks off the guy's ear. You know, you know, this this is the. The, the guy talking about John and, and uh, uh, James were, were, you know, bring, put, put fire on them, guy. You know, bring down the fire. You know, burn them up. They don't deserve to be here. You know, these were hot-tempered guys in a lot of ways. And, and to come face-to-face -face with the people that taught the things, that, that heard the things that they were told to teach, and that they just push them to the side. You think they'd be angry? Righteously so. You know, did, did Paul have a problem with confronting Peter in, 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 uh, in a Galatian letter? Not at all. 
didn't do it to attack Peter. He did it to attack the practice that Peter was adopting in his behavior toward various groups of people. You know, that's what he was attacking. How did they handle that? We've also found that that throughout this whole process, this is the second thing, that many and most of these doctrines that have been adapted during that first two or three centuries had to do with money and power. That was the driving force. God kind of got pushed out of, out, out of the picture. Jesus wasn't such a big deal anymore. And, and, and they, they assume a little power and, and what happens to most people when they get a little power? They want more power. And then if they get a little more power, they want a lot more power. And then they wonder why somebody else has power and why can't I have it all? And they're going to try to manipulate it every way they can. And once you have power, folks, you also have something else. Money. Greed. Greed. They're going to go after it. Matthew 28 and 18, that's where Jesus said, he said, look, I've got all authority. I've got all authority. I don't need your interpretation. I, I don't need to know what you think. I don't need to know of a way to make it better. Because there is none. You know, just absolutely. Everything you read about Jesus particularly in the Hebrew letter. But when they're referring to Jesus, I don't know how many times, I've never counted it up, how many times they make the statement, the writer does in some shape, form, or fashion, that it's done. Jesus is taken care of. It's over. It's finished. And, and there's not anything new. Let Solomon come back and write to Ecclesiastes after Jesus. And see if there's not a little different tone the way he writes it there. That book. Same message, but a different outlook. But what really comes down, this, this is the kicker for the whole thing. If you deviate from the expressed authority of Jesus Christ, you know what we call that? sin. <clears throat> and it's not about mortal sins, <clears throat> venial sins. It's called sin. It's not big. It's not small. It's sin. And the result is it's going to take you out of the picture where God is massive changes that occurred in <coughs> a very short period of time. But now we're going to begin to look at, okay, let's look at some specific splits that have occurred. Where these splits came from, where they led as we move 